All right, good morning. Um, Revelation chapter 3 in your Bible, if you would. Revelation chapter 3. I don't have any new handouts, but because uh, we're going to. But I do have a number of ones that had been given out. If you're missing any, you could see if there's some in there. Um, Revelation 3, we're going to, we, we didn't finish looking at the letter to the church at Philadelphia last week, so that's what we're going to pick back up on. And uh, so let's do it this way. We'll go ahead and read through the letter again, and, uh, or I'll, I'll ask you all to read through it, and then we'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll jump back into this. So if uh, Pastor Brinker, if you'd start there, so that'd be verses 7 through 13 in Revelation 3. 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works, and behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but they lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, to know that I have loved them. Because thou hast kept thy word from thy patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world, and try them that dwell on the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man shake thy ground. Him that overcometh, will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Thank you, Lord, uh, for this opportunity this morning. Please help us now as we look at this portion of your word, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this is the sixth of these seven letters, as you are aware there. And uh, if you remember, as we started looking at this letter last week, we saw uh, several characteristics, if you want to say, about this letter that uh, are different from the others, but yet in common with others as well, and uh, you know, as I was rereading this a number of times this morning, just uh, reading through this this particular letter, and several things hit me. Um, you know, when you think about this letter, what does it have in common with, say, the letter to the church at Smyrna, the second of those letters? Do you remember? All right, that, that, that letter to Smyrna and to Philadelphia are the two of these seven letters that don't have any word of condemnation from the Lord to the church in these, in these instances, all right? Uh, that's, that's one thing that they have in common that's distinct from the other five. Um, another thing that struck me, if you remember back in uh, chapter 2, the letter to the church at Smyrna, I think it's verses 8 through 11, in that letter, uh, there was the, uh, the Lord said something about those that say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. You remember that? Did you notice that in this particular letter, uh, verse 9, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie, behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. So a similar reference in this letter uh, to that. Um, I'm not necessarily 100% sure what all the significance of that is, but I mean, it, it's interesting that the two churches that have no condemnation, very, very similar statement is made uh, regarding that. And then um, there are some other things about this particular letter that stand out as well, and we want to touch on some of those uh, here today. Um, and, you know, like the other seven letters, there's, there still is a uh, common outline that we are looking at that's common to all these letters. And, of course, when the Lord addresses the church here in Philadelphia, that is the, 
the church that's addressed, and we talked a little bit about that city in that last week. I'm not going to mention anything else about that, but if you remember, as the Lord then uh, gives some description of Himself, which is which is true in every letter, every one of these letters, the Lord Jesus says something about Himself as He addresses uh, the church, and in this particular letter, as we mentioned this last week, but there's, there seems to be a longer statement in this category than the others. Uh, again, kind of interesting, although some of these kind of coincide with each other, but here the Lord Jesus says that, you know, write to this church, and then these things saith, he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, and then he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. In a way, perhaps, well, probably it's safe to say those last two descriptions kind of go with the, the third one there, that he that hath the key of David. But um, uh, the Holy One, the True One, and then really, as, as we mentioned last week, the Sovereign One. The Lord is the one who is in control. He's the one that has the rights to everything. He doesn't necessarily exercise all of those rights at this time, but he is the one that has the rights to everything. He's the one that has the, the right, the possession there of the key of David, the right to the throne of David, which he will exercise in the millennial time, uh, in that, that thousand-year period that is yet future, uh, but yet a literal period of time where he will come back to this earth prior to that, then the millennium starts and he rules and reigns on this earth for a thousand years. And that subject of the second coming of Christ, of course, is one of the biggest subjects in the Bible in reality. Um, in fact, I, I can't necessarily verify this, but I've heard it said that one out of every 25 verses in the Bible can be said to have some kind of bearing on the second coming of Christ. Now, I can't verify that statistically necessarily, but if you think about that, that's, that's a pretty significant number, pretty significant subject. And the second coming of Christ, of course, in a general sense, is the, the theme of this whole book, right? This is the revelation or the revealing the unveiling, the disclosing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, when we talk about the second coming of Christ, um, it, those who have the, uh, well, I'm trying to think how to word this right. When, those of our particular doctrinal persuasion, all right, uh, basically hold to the second coming in a general sense as happening in two two events, two phases, and of course you're, you're familiar with this, but uh, what one would be called the rapture, all right, the rapture of the saints, and then secondly, the revelation of Christ proper, when he literally returns to this earth and is revealed to the world, all right, he's, he's, he's shown for who he is, he is revealed in that sense, he, it, it's a very open thing, all right, in uh, this letter, of course, that is still a, a, a subject as it is throughout this entire book, but in this particular letter, there is a, a reference then to the other aspect of that, to the rapture, and we're going we're gonna to talk about that uh, for a few minutes here this morning, and, um, in, and it's interesting that this church is the one that the Lord states this to. Now, let me just say up front, I don't think that it's only for this church, but uh, that it's interesting that he states it to this church. Um, remember, in every one of these letters, there's a common statement, right? He that hath ears to hear, where he that hath ears, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches, all right, plural. So it's indicating that every one of these letters, of course, and, and this goes back to another thing that we've, we've stated a number of times, but there's, there's several, uh, if you want to say, layers of interpreting and applying these letters. First of all, obviously, they were given. The, each one of these letters, and really the book of Revelation as a whole, were sent to these seven literal churches that are named in the book that existed back in that first century. All right, literal, actual churches. 
no different than if, if this was written today, okay, uh, and the Lord said, uh, uh, you know, this, this is going to be to these seven churches, and he named seven churches that existed or that exist right now, all right? In that sense, no different than that. They were literal seven churches that existed that the Lord picked out of all the churches that were in existence at that time, which were far more than just these seven. But for His purposes, His reasons, He picked these seven. Now, they are in, in, in pretty much of a geographical area that's close, all right? So they had a close proximity to each other, so the, the letter was going to there. Um, but each one of these churches were the recipients of the, the book of Revelation as a whole, but then in that book, in this book, each one of those seven churches received an individual specific letter to them from the Lord Jesus. And obviously, each of these churches had specific needs and issues that the Lord is addressing in these letters, all right? An individual situation, all right? But then, because every one of these letters has that statement that in this case, it's in verse 13, he that hath an ear, let him hear, all right? So, he, that's individual here, right? That's an, that's a uh, a third person singular pronoun, so that's in the individual, right? He that hath an ear. And by the way, that would include she's, not just he's, but uh, the one that has ears, all right? So in other words, everybody is supposed to listen up and heed this because obviously there are, there are personal applications for everybody in these letters as well. But then he says, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, and he says that in every one of these seven letters, so it's not just that particular church that's to listen up, it's to all the churches, right? The Spirit saith to the churches, all the churches, all seven in that, in, in that specific case, but all churches across the board as well, as far as all the Lord's churches everywhere, anytime, any place, all right, throughout the history of this New Testament time. Just like, or for instance, no different than uh, when the Lord used the Apostle Paul to write the Corinthian letters, all right, First and Second Corinthians. They are specifically addressed to the church of God at Corinth. Both of those letters are, all right. Um, the, the, the letters to the church, at, to the Thessalonians, all right, they are specifically addressed to uh, the church at which is in Thessalonica. All right? I mean, so again, no different than that. But those letters are obviously applicable to all the Lord's churches. All right? um, some New Testament books are addressed in a general sense. Right? Or, you know, they're not specified for one church necessarily. All right? But the point being is these letters spell out specific things. They spell out that they are intended for these seven churches, and because of the statements that are made, we also understand that they're for individuals to pay attention to, right? Because, I mean, think about it as well. Even if it's sent to a church, that church is made up of individuals, all right? But then it's also intended for all the churches to listen, to pay attention, to heed what is said, all right? So, Again, in that vein of thinking, obviously what's said to the church at Philadelphia would arguably then be applicable to all churches, all right? Does that, does that make sense? I'm saying all that to get to a point here, okay, with uh, what we're talking about, the specific promise that we see in this particular letter to the church at Philadelphia, all right? So Christ, uh, He describes Himself and... And and all and one of you know the key thing that he seems to indicate about this church is that in his sovereignty he has opened certain doors and he has shut certain doors and this church has the opportunity to go through a certain door that the Lord has opened and uh, and he's commending them for being faithful in doing so. In fact, it's interesting as well in. 
uh, verse 8, he says, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. All right, so he sa- he's commending them that they have kept his word. The word keep here, it's used actually off a number of times in this letter and throughout the Bible, but it's the same word used in the Great Commission, uh, Matthew 28, verse 20, which says, um, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. The word observe there is the same word that's translated keep here. In fact, it's often translated keep in, in the New Testament, but that's part of the Great Commission, is that people are taught to keep, to observe all that the Lord instructed, right? Not just a few pet things or, you know, somebody's, you know, uh, individual list, but the Lord's list. In other words, he says, all things, teaching them. That's part of a, the church's responsibility is not only, uh, you know, Go, you know, trying to reach throughout where we are and through all the world in, in preaching the gospel and then making disciples and then baptizing those that are saved, but to be teaching them to observe, to keep, to obey all things whatsoever the Lord has commanded. All right, that's, that's part of it. And the Lord is commending this church for keeping, observing His Word. So they were an obedient church. And remember last week we got into that part and we there's two really big characteristics that I think that you can see the Lord's commending them for is that they were obedient and they were faithful. And that's really what the Lord expects from every church, from every individual, is obedience and faithfulness, endurance. They had not uh, they they uh, had not denied his name, but they had kept his word. So obedience and faithfulness, endurance, faithfulness are 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 uh, what are are the qualifications, if you want to say, that the Lord expects. And we we talked a little bit about that. All right. And then as we as we think about this and move on, all right, think about this: the the open door that the Lord talks about here, that was the Lord's doing not theirs. It wasn't their responsibility to try to open doors. The Lord is the one that opened the door, but it was their responsibility to go through the door. All right? And you think about that, that's an example of uh, what you could call divine cooperation. I mean, the work is the Lord's work, but people are to be obedient to Him in doing it. So there's, there's a divine cooperation that's involved. And, and you know, Paul refers to that as, as, you know, the Lord's the one that, you know, he says that he, he uh, planted, Apollos watered, but God's the one that, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> gave the increase there. And he's the one that it's, and it's really his work. We are laborers together with God, he says in that same general passage there in 1 Corinthians 3. All right, so... And, and then Paul, in other cases, we talked about the door of opportunity that the Lord gave Paul in Asia as well, which Asia, by the way, is Ephesus and, and this whole area. Now, uh, the only city in the book of Acts in Asia that we specifically see Paul uh, named as ministering in directly was Ephesus. But it says there in Acts 19, <coughs> excuse me, oh, what's wrong with my... <coughs> throat here, but um, in Acts 19.10, it says that all Asia heard the word of the Lord in the context of those uh, several years that Paul was ministering there in Asia, and it seems to me that Paul was working and, and he's using Paul's technique or his, his, uh, his, his format of ministry, thank you, was that he would he would have others, and he would train men and send them out. It was like a, you know, a, a network, if you want to say, that he's putting out there. And in training them and all that, of course, then they get the experience. But, um, and these other men are apparently going to these other places, such as Colossae. We know uh, that 
it seems that Paul didn't directly minister in Colossae, but they knew about him, right? Philemon was there and so on, and, and apparently they had met somehow. But uh, there's, there's a number of names mentioned in that letter to, to the church at Colossae as well. Those that would have been involved in that ministry in that time. And so it's, uh, it's a matter of divine cooperation. The Lord opens the door, but we're the ones that have to go through it. We're the ones that have to be obedient, be faithful to Him, and that is what the Lord requires. Now, like in Smyrna, there's no word of condemnation given to this church. He doesn't issue condemnation, or He does issue condemnation to those who are opposed to the church, like we saw in that letter to uh, Smyrna, and he mentions them as being like saying they're Jews, but they're not. They're of the synagogue of Satan. Now, physically, maybe they were Jews, but obviously there's a, uh, uh, a reference there to, um, to some things. But here in, in this passage, what I, I want to move on now to um, this uh, part here in verse 10 particularly, all right? He says, because thou hast kept... The word of my patience, and that's the same word as in verse uh, 8 that we saw, all right? They had obeyed his word. They had kept it. I mean, the, that word keep uh, has, has a, a range of meaning, all right? It, in one sense, the word was used of, of, of keeping watch over something, guarding in that sense. And the other side of it is, has the idea of keeping it in the sense of obeying it, holding fast to it, not dropping it, not, you know, letting it go, that kind of an idea. And uh, in, in some ways, you can see all of those uh, aspects as being involved in what the Lord expects of His churches. But here He said that they had, they had kept His word. But He says, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, notice what He says here. I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. And then in verse 11, he goes on to say, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. All right, so... Uh, in, in these verses, the Lord makes a, an interesting promise uh, to this church here. He says, because they had kept the word of His patience, He was going to keep them from, and it's important the way it's worded here, but He says, the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. All right, now, what does that seem to indicate to you when he talks about this, this uh, hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world? Again, notice the, the expressions here, all right? To try them that dwell upon the earth. All right, definitely seems to indicate this tribulation time, which again, I mean, is not just another... Uh, experience in this world of, you know, some, some judgment and some plagues and things of that sort, right? The tribulation, as we generally refer to it, is a specific period of time that's talked about a lot in the Bible, all right, that um, is a specific season of God's particular judgment on this earth, such as has never taken place before. It's, it's often referred to in the phrase in the Old Testament, at least part of that, as the day of the Lord. All right, now the day of the Lord is a little bit broader than just the tribulation time, but, but when you think of that phrase and how that's used in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, all right, is it's the idea of a day or a time, the day there doesn't mean a specific 24-hour period of time, but a, a season, a time, that the Lord is specifically involved in doing something, right? And it's, and it's most often always referred to in a context that, that is carrying 
judgment with it. All right, and again, it's, it's used, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but that phrase occurs many times, particularly in the Old Testament, but many, many times. All right, and so when you read this passage, this should get your attention, all right? He says, I'm going to keep you from the hour of temptation which will come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Now, I want you to think about this for just a second. Everybody in here has heard of the, tri- uh, the rapture, the tribulation, the second coming, and so on. Now, the rapture itself is a, a doctrine that is uh, under a lot... Well, I, I mean, I don't know... It, if it's fair to say it's under a lot of attack, but it's a doctrine that is, as far as the largest professing Christianity, if I can put it in that term, it is a doctrine that's really not believed much in the scope of, again, professing Christianity, right? It's generally uh, overlooked or explained away or, or something of that sort. In fact, many that profess Christianity don't even believe in a literal second coming. I mean, that boggles my mind to think about that because if you read the Bible at all and, I mean, just take the Bible at face value, you have to believe in that. I mean, uh, besides all the Old Testament prophecies about the second coming, The Lord Jesus Himself made numerous statements concerning the second coming in some form or fashion. The the New Testament, in a a broader sense, makes numerous statements. In fact, the New Testament brings in another aspect of that, which is the rapture. Uh, The rapture, the idea of the rapture is not talked about in the Old Testament. It's foreign to the Old Testament. It's a mystery. In fact, we're going to look at several passages and we'll see that exact word used of it. All right? It's something that was not known to the Old Testament prophets. It was revealed only in the New Testament time. The rapture, not the second coming. All right? So, in, in other words, like many doctrines, we have something introduced in the Old Testament, but as Bible, uh, if you want to say, uh, revelation goes on, all right, and more and more of the Bible was given by God because it wasn't all given at one time. You understand that, right? I mean, the Bible was given by the Lord over a period of about 1,500, 1,600 years. I mean, that's, that's a few years, right? That's longer than all of us probably cumulative, you know, total have lived here on this earth. It's a long time. And so, uh, like much of what you see in the Bible, all right, there were things introduced and and. You know, doctrine given, but then later it's, it's expanded upon, and then more details are filled in, so that the later you go in, in, uh, in, in Bible revelation, that, that the more you have, all right? That's, that's the idea. It's a progression uh, thing, all right? It fits in with the, the whole concept of dispensations, all right, and, and how God deals with man and has dealt with man throughout history. It's a building block, if you want to say, all right? So, thinking of those things, let's let's, uh, turn to just several passages here. And as you're, turn to John 14 first. We're going to look at just about four passages as quick as possible. But John 14, but as you're turning, think about this. If you were to... You just had the Bible on your lap, and you were to turn to somewhere in the Bible that talked about prophecy, all right, where would you go? Now, you could go to a number of places, but mo- I, I would dare say that most people would say, okay, let's look at the book of Revelation, all right? And that's true, all right? Um, but then secondly, all right, if you are going to, excuse me, have the Bible, on your lap, and somebody says, show me something about the second coming of Christ, where would you go? And again, there's a lot of statements in the Bible about it, a lot of things, but the book of Revelation would fit the bill for that, right? I mean, it, and I'm just, I'm just throwing this out to, to kind of get your mind going here. As you start thinking about this, all right, the book of Revelation has a whole lot of details, all right, that fill in gaps that were left on purpose in other places. 
Now, that said, where would you go in the Bible to look at the rapture? That's a far more difficult question. And by the way, that's why a lot of people say it's not a valid doctrine, because we're just making it up. It's just some, you know, uh, blissful thought that we have that will be rescued before the world faces all this traumatic stuff and that kind of an idea. Now, it can be argued, and I'm going to try to word this carefully, okay? It could be argued by people that the book of Revelation does not specifically teach or mention the rapture. All right, now there's several problems with that. One is the word rapture does not occur in the English Bible, okay? the, the English word rapture. You're not going to find that in the Bible. All right? um, the word that that comes from, okay, uh, which our English word rapture comes from a Latin word, but, uh, but where that comes from is found in the Bible, the, what the meaning of the rapture, the concept of the rapture. We're going to look at that passage here in just a moment in 1 Thessalonians, but uh, the idea is in the Bible, okay? The doctrine's there. That word is not. And again, I'm just, these are things that people use to argue against it, all right? And then again, if you, if you were to, just taking the Bible literally at face value, all right, if you read the book of Revelation, where does it teach the idea of a rapture? It is a little more, uh, if you want to say, complicated, okay? But the point is, there are numerous things in the book of Revelation that make things clear, all right? And then with light shed from other places of the Bible, we can see it, okay? Does, does that make sense, saying it that way? All right, so when you, well, for instance, let's do this. Hold your place in John 14. We will get right back there, but turn to Revelation chapter 19 for just a second. Hold your place, John 14. But go to Revelation 19. <clears throat> Revelation 19 um, begins by, by talking about a scene in heaven here. And of course, then it, it's going to talk about the uh, marriage of the Lamb and so on. Um, if you... Go down to, all right, talks about the, the four and twenty elders and the, uh, and the four beasts fell down and worshiped God that sat on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. That, this passage has always uh, just really captivated my attention because there's four times in this passage that you see the word Hallelujah, people saying Hallelujah. And it's always just, anyway, but it's, it's an interesting scenario here. Um, and then, Verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. All right, now this is taking place in heaven, right? This is taking place in heaven. Now notice the change that takes place. Verse 9, and he saith unto me, right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, these are the true sayings of God, and I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said unto me, See thou do it not, I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren, and have the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's another interesting statement. Now verse 11, notice this. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. Now, in the letter that we've, or the letters we've seen, all right, who in the world can be called faithful and true? All right, and in righteousness, righteousness, he doth judge and make war. Now, notice the continued description. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And in case we're wondering, his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, 
white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword. Remember that description? That, he, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, for time's sake, i got to stop right here. But this is a, a description in its timing in the future of the Lord Jesus leaving heaven... And you'll see, if you keep reading, coming back to this earth. And there's a, at least a twofold purpose in his coming back to this earth. To judge and to rule. All right? So when he comes, there's going to be judgment that happens. He makes war because the kings of the earth set themselves against him. All right? Psalm 2. And they, you know, they say, we're not going to let him rule over us. <laughs> uh, and he comes and he smites them with the word of his mouth. I mean, he, he literally doesn't even have to lift a finger. He just takes care of them with the word of his mouth. But he comes back to the earth, he judges, and he rules. This is where the second coming literal takes place. He rules. Now, jump a little bit ahead. Following his coming back to the earth, notice what Revelation 20 says. And I want you to notice a common phrase that occurs at least seven times in six verses here. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him, notice, a thousand years. And uh, and, and verse 3, and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God and which had not worshipped the beast neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now let me ask you this. If you take the Bible at face value, does it give any kind of an indication here that when Christ comes back to this earth from heaven, he's going to rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years? If you take the Bible at any kind of literal value, you have to come to that conclusion. And notice the thousand year reign follows the second coming which in the course of the book of Revelation, chapters 6 through 18, present to us the tribulation time here on the earth. So you have very clearly in the book of Revelation laid out the tribulation time, the second coming of Christ back to the earth, and then the millennium, the thousand-year reign. All right, you have those three clearly. I mean, you, you have to just bury your head in the sand and do as... Professor, I have a friend of mine, he used to say you would have to do exegetical gymnastics to come away with something different than that, all right? I mean, it's literally right there, very clear. The only question is, where and how does the rapture fit into all of that if it's a true doctrine? When very clearly in Revelation 19, you see that the purpose of Christ leaving heaven to come to this earth is to judge and make war, all right, that's part of the judging, and to rule, to rule on this earth for a thousand years. He's going to execute his right as the son of David to rule on the throne of David in Jerusalem for a thousand years, the millennial reign. So that's the purpose. You clearly see that in that second coming. So here's the question. How does the rapture fit into that? What is the rapture, all right? Glad you asked. Go back to John 14 real quick. We're going to read several 
uh, different little passages here that uh, help answer those questions, all right? John 14, Jesus is speaking. This is in that hours before he's arrested, then crucified the next morning, all right? He's talking to the apostles here. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Now notice verse 3. This is the key verse here. And if I go and prepare a place for you, what's the next statement? I will come again. Now keep in mind, again, who is speaking these words here? It's the Lord Jesus, right? I will come again. Now, it's the fulfillment of a conditional sentence here, all right? If I go, now, did he go? Was he here the first time? Yes. Not just the Bible bears that out, but all of history bears that out. Again, you have to be willing to stick your head in the sand to, to believe otherwise, all right? Um, but he was here. He left, and he promises that he will come again. Now, notice what else he says about that. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. So not only does he make this promise, but notice what is attached to it. In other words, what you can say is, is in this brief statement, but his purpose for this particular coming again. He says, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there ye may be also. Whole different attitude and tenure, if you want to say, of what he's saying here versus what Revelation 19 describes. Revelation 19, he's leaving heaven, coming with saints back to this earth to judge and to rule. Here he's saying, I'm going to come again and get you. I'm going to receive you Unto me that where I am, there ye may be also. It's a whole different purpose in that statement. In other words, I'm gonna, I want to get you so you're with me. Now, think of this. If that's the case, something that's described here has to take place before Revelation 19. Because in Revelation 19, his people, his saints, his armies are coming back with him. So they're already with him for one thing. All right? Now, go to let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And you remember uh, Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 and I took longer to get here than what I should have, so I got to rush here. Hebrews 9:27. Familiar verse, all right? And the purpose of that verse, if you remember from when we looked at the book of Hebrews, is emphasizing that Christ died only once. He only had to die once, and it was a once-for-all death that atoned for sin, right? Okay, but that verse says what? Um, As it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. So a Bible principle, something that all men have an appointment for, and that's death and judgment, all right? Death and judgment of some kind or another, all right? We know that the, the rule because of sin in the world is... Death is a result of sin. Now, 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 51. Behold, this is Paul writing to the church at Corinth, but he says, Behold, I show you a mystery. Now, that means he's not talking about watching Sherlock Holmes or something like that, but he's saying, this is, I'm going to show you something that has been hidden, but it's now revealed. And the word mystery occurs a number of times in the New Testament, and there's always a, a connection of what it's talking about, but it's, it's talking about something that hadn't been revealed in the Bible yet, chronologically speaking, but is now being revealed, all right? I show you a mystery, and what is that? What is God telling us that He hadn't told us before? Well, that is, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now, the word sleep here is a euphemism for death, all right? Physical death. In other words, Paul's saying, hey, we're not all going to die. Well, why? You'll get to that, but I mean, it's because Christ is going to come back, all right, and take His own out of this world. But we shall all be changed. Even though 
we're not all going to face physical death. We shall, and when I say all, I'm not necessarily talking about, I'm, I'm saying that as a principle, and that's how it's to be taken here, not as in literally everybody in this room, all right? Because we may or may not die before this happens, but this is, this is the principle here. There's going to be, and you could word it this way, there's going to be a generation of believers that don't die. whole generation of believers that don't die. When the rapture happens, right, they'll be raptured out without having died. Yes, death and judgment are the rule. It's a universal rule, but there is an exception to that because God has made an exception to that. All right? Enoch was an Old Testament example of that exception. All right? Elijah as well. But there's going to be a whole generation of Christians that don't die physically. But even though they don't die physically, they will be changed. In other words, we're going to... So what happens at the rapture? Well, I don't have time to read these other passages. 1 Thessalonians 4, another familiar passage, verses 13 through 18, step by step tell us what's going to happen at the rapture. All right? The Lord, there's going to be a, a shout and a voice and so on. The Lord himself, he's going to leave heaven, but he's not coming back to the earth in this. He's in the air. Now, exactly where and what that means, how far above the earth, I don't know. I mean, it might be, you know, farther than, than Venus and Jupiter and all those things. But in somewhere in the atmosphere, in the air, the Lord Jesus will leave heaven, come to there, and he's going to call his own to meet him. All right? Those that are New Testament believers who have physically died, they will be resurrected at that time. Those who haven't, now by the way, resurrection is not just a resuscitation back to the same physical life. People that were raised from the dead in the Bible, for instance, Lazarus, he was he was resuscitated, so to speak. He was given back that physical life that he had, but he wasn't resurrected. Resurrection in the Bible is not just brought back physically, but a change happens. In other words, as 1 Corinthians 15, let me just continue reading and you'll see this. All right, in a moment, verse 20 or 52, excuse me. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then you have a, a statement there of exhortation. But So in other words, you see the emphasis there on mortal must become immortal. Uh, and so on. The idea a resurrection is not just being physically brought back to life, but a complete change happens. A, and, and when Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, resurrected on the third day, he, was, he didn't just come back to life in the exact same physical body he had. His body was changed. All right? He was physically brought back to life, but he was also immortalized physically, as will all saints be when, they, when the resurrection happens, at the rapture. Now, I'm out of time here, but... Um, So the rapture, the, what is the rapture? Read 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. The rapture is Jesus comes back in the air, not physically back to the earth yet. That's not until Revelation 19. And when he does that, it's for the purpose of ruling and reigning on this earth, judging and ruling. When he comes in the air, 
and He calls out those that are His, He resurrects them. Those that have physically died will be resurrected. Those that are still physically alive when that happens, according to 1 Corinthians 15 here, will be changed. Will experience the effects of resurrection without having to die. I mean, that's basically what it is. We're going to be changed. Uh, that which is mortal must put on immortality. Corruptible will become incorruptible, and so on. That's talking about all that. So in other words, after that resurrection, you'll have a new, a new body, a new, a new you, all right? I mean, when Jesus resurrected on the third day, yes, He physically resurrected, but not in the exact same form. He obviously, there were differences, Right? Before that, he was physically limited because of how he chose. Right? He became man with all the normal limitations physically of a man or of human. After his resurrection, he passed through walls, made appearances out of nowhere. I mean, he didn't have the same physical limitations. His body was changed. Right? And that's what's going to happen to believers during the resurrection. We will be immortalized, <laughs> uh, quite literally in that, all right? Um, we'll, let's, we'll stop here for now. Um, in that letter to the, ch to the church at uh, Philadelphia, all right, the Lord promises them that He will keep them from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. All right? In other words, He makes them a promise that He's going to keep them from. The word from there is a translation of a, of a preposition, Greek preposition that means out of. Not just like making a separation here of, of a couple different things, but... He'll keep them out of, and he doesn't just say, understand, he doesn't say out of the tribulation, but he says out of the hour, from the hour, the time of the tribulation. In other words, they will not be in that time of tribulation because he's going to get them out of there first is, is literally the idea. And... That is consistent with what the rest of the New Testament teaches about the rapture, all right? And, and we'll, whether it's next week, we might just pick up with the, the letter to Laodicea, but we're going to see some other things in the book of Revelation because I never got to fully answer the question that I asked before, right? Is the rapture seen in the book of Revelation, right? We'll, we'll answer that more one way or another here in the next number of weeks. All right, so we have to stop here now. Thank you, Lord, for your word, the promises in your word. Thank you that we have a resurrection to look forward to one day. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be obedient and faithful to you now in this time. And, Lord, so we'd be pleasing to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name, and for his sake we pray, amen.